views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Now look what we have here before us. We've got the Saracens sitting next to the Jones Street boys. We've got the Moonrunners right by the Van Cortland Rangers. Nobody is wasting nobody. That is a miracle. And miracles is the way things ought to be. You're standing right now with nine delegates from a hundred gangs. And there's over a hundred more. That's 20,000 hardcore members, 40,000 counting affiliates, and 20,000 more not organized, but ready to fight. 60,000 soldiers. Now there ain't but 20,000 police in the whole town. Now here's the sum total. One gang could run this city one gang. Nothing would move without us allowing it to happen. You can tax the crime syndicates, the police, because we got the streets, suckers. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, June 14, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. 519-661 is always the number you can... So 661-3600 should give the whole number before asking the call. <laughs> 519-661-3600 is always the number you can call to reach us here at Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM where today we'll be talking about a number of things. I think some of the things we're talking about today were a little bit precipitated by our show last week in terms of some of the direction we've gone in. I know... Uh, we're going to be talking about nars from narcissism to nihilism, the lost years faced by many kids living in poverty and in gang warfare. And we'll be t- looking at Caledonia again, a little bit of an update, things that, could, that weren't said in, in the show last week. I think that was an eye-opener. And we've got some feedback on a number of other issues from our listeners that we thought we should catch up on as well. Now, our opening today was from the 1979 film The Warriors, where we just heard the traditional collectivist and McGinty philosophy of forward together. (laughs) That's what that was all about. Can you dig it? (laughs) Which, of course, is completely wrong, both in theory and practice, because it doesn't take 60,000 people to create a revolution or a war or chaos. It only takes about five or six. Yep. And that's partially sort of an underlying theme of our show today, although it's not the explicit part of it. And uh, we certainly saw that in the disruptions of Caledonia that were discussed last week, and we'll certainly see it in a number of other issues. The Occupy movement, and it works both ways too. A couple of people, the good guys can also do a lot. Only being five or six. Well, you and I know that. So there's the there's the thing. Once you get up into sixty thousand, well, you've lost control. (laughs) (laughs) As happened in that movie, that guy didn't even live to finish his speech, did he? No, he didn't. So in any case. Got some, got, got some email. I don't know if you've even seen a lot of this, Robert, but this is from Ben Z from the Netherlands. I didn't know that's where he was writing from. Remember we read his little quote a couple uh. of weeks ago? And he says he really liked our show on postmodernism, and he appreciated that we understood the nature of his quote, why he gave it, about the force being equivalent on both sides of the good equation and bad side, right? And he said on the show on postmodernism, he says, the ending note did leave me a bit concerned, though. What can people do to prepare for the worst? And what would be the least that one should be should reasonably prepare for? I think these are some of the questions we might be looking at a little bit today. 
in our upcoming segments. But certainly I think uh, the most important thing to do is people have to know about these things. The word's not getting out. For most people, these things like postmodernism aren't even, it's not even a word in the average person's mind, right? Well, that's why we're here, Bob. Yeah. And he asks, uh, will you guys also tackle nihilism someday? Hmm, interesting. That word came up today in our topics. It's one of those terms that gets thrown around a lot, but of which most people don't know the philosophical meaning. A meaning which, in my opinion, has earned its practitioners more than being subjected to a certain rugby move. And he writes on a lighter note, since you guys seem to be rather fond of your monarchy, writing from the Netherlands, of course, but also support Canada being an independent nation, what would you think of having Paul McKeever become the king of Canada? (laughs) (laughs) He says, the beard does give him a rather royal look, I think. (laughs) I says, well, okay, if we can vote for him, I guess I'll be for it. But as to your question on uh, nihilism... I thought I'd give a quick summary of what I found out. I don't know that it warrants a a whole show in and of itself. There are actually four different forms of nihilism, as I found out very quickly in my um, actual encyclopedia, not my dictionary this time. And there's the political term, which was originally used to designate the Russian socialist movement, which began in 1870. Quote, it was based on the belief that the social and economic systems of the period had to be destroyed. So there's a nihilism. So that the way could be cleared for another kind of government. A desire for a parliamentary type of government was the main constructive idea uh, fostered by the nihilists. Direct action by ways of various forms of terrorism was common and the movement had no centralized organization. So that's what they say about the political history of it. And I would think that the only reason they were in favor of a, quote, parliamentary type of government was so that they could institute majority rule. They could control it. Sure. And in metaphysics, nihilism is a doctrine that refuses a substantial reality to the phenomenal existence of which man is conscious. Interesting distinction. This is different from saying that there are existence about which we are not aware. That's another thing. Nihilism here means you even deny those things of which you are conscious of. That's an interesting... That's basically denying reality as you even perceive it. I've always looked at nihilism as an outward expression of suicidal tendencies. Well, it may well be, because you're moving towards nothing, and that's what you end up when you're dead, right? In ordinary language, nihilism means nothingness, the state or condition of being nothing. Nihility, I never saw that word before. And in church history, interesting, nihilism taught that God did not become anything through his incarnation, which he was not before. The view was officially condemned at the Council of Letarian in 1179. So, uh, for anything else on nihilism, there's really not a lot to be said on the subject or the definition itself. And I think a million times, nothing still adds up to nothing. You could talk about it all day long. I think it's been used synonymously with the word anarchists or anarchism. It's basically a destruction, um, a a smashing of that... Without purpose. ...establishment, without purpose, yeah, for the sake of it. Yes. Almost like the Occupy movement, like they they wanted to go out and smash, uh, but... Remember, one of the criticisms of the Occupy movement is, what do they stand for? Yeah. And, of course, uh, you can't take anything away from nothing that isn't already not there. (laughs) 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 Like, how negative can you get, right? Jerry Seinfeld, move over. Robert and I are going to do a nothing show. When we're long dead dead and gone, I think. That's a promise we can keep. (laughs) We'll do nothing shows when we're long dead and gone. And this one is from our... Euro correspondent Paul Lambert, who writes, thanks again for yet another very enjoyable episode of Just Right. And in this case, he was referring to our show on celebrating 20 years of shopping, uh, Sunday shopping in Ontario that we did a few weeks ago. He says, the thing I find most scary about the topic discussed is that I remember it like it were yesterday. To think of it having been 20 years ago is a grim reminder of how quickly time passes and my own mortality. One thing I thought you would have brought up, and perhaps you meant to, but you ran out of time, was that while the, real, while the retail stores were closed on Sunday, every other kind of business operated. My family certainly ordered pizzas on Sunday and went bowling at the alley or even skating at the city-owned arenas, all fully staffed. Restaurants in general were open Sunday as well, not all of them if I remember correctly, but Sunday brunch was definitely an institution that employed many people. The TV and radio stations were staffed by at least one person who back then had had to manually change the tapes. TV London Channel 10 had live newscasts. A few of the panelists had talked about 
quality of life as a reason against Sunday shopping, feigning concern with employees. Why no concern for all those forced-to-work Sundays and all those other fields? Forced is the wrong word there, yeah, though. Well, that he puts that in quotation marks referring to their arguments, oh, okay, right? Okay, good, good. It's sarcastic force. <laughs> Consider, too, that they talked about setting aside individual freedom or, law, or the law of the jungle for the general well-being and quality of life of the community. Imagine how dim- diminished the quality of life for most people in urban settings would be without access to restaurants, pizza deliveries, recreational facilities, Mother's Day brunches, or without TV and radio to wind down with at the end of a weekend before starting a new work week. Does he mention firefighters, nurses, doctors, hospital workers, policemen? And factories, which, you know, ordinary production was not affected by those laws. It was just Retail Business Holidays Act. It it was was the one, yes, it was the one area of business that would have benefited the most from being open on those weekends because it was servicing all those other areas that were closed. (laughs) I I never understood the logic when it was happening. There was no logic, it was silly. You know? He says, I dare say that, ironically, even religious life would suffer for for the many elderly, handicapped, and other shut-ins unable to parishion, but who depend on church services broadcast over the radio. In fact, when we were in on that issue, we found out that Sunday was the lonely day for a lot of seniors when, when there was Sunday closing laws. For a lot of them, their place of community was in the malls, was in the stores, was in areas of commerce where a lot of people gathered. And, you know, we just never, we never even thought about them in the whole debate. But while we're on the subject of the particulars of the Sunday shopping prohibitions that were not discussed, don't forget we did that a bit intentionally. After all, the real unmentioned elephant in the room in that debate between Mark Emery and, and the others on that panel was the actual charge he was in jail for. He wasn't really in jail for opening his store no. on a Sunday. Uh, which was already legal for bookstores, as uh, Mario Thrasselli eventually observed in the interview, but didn't really follow up with the obvious question, then why were you in jail, right? But he was actually in jail for employing too many people on a Sunday, and that's why he was down at the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center for a week. And um, a consequence of the legislation that the NDP replaced the original closing laws with. Now, what's interesting, Robert, is that Sunday shopping hearings are beginning on the remainders of these laws that, that uh, Bob Ray left next week in Toronto. Is that right? That's right. You just heard about it yesterday. And um, I remember, too, on that morning that Mark came into the station here to do the debate, you know, coaching him to not get caught up in all those trivial side issues. You know, don't say it's that because then you lose the whole issue, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's just a minor side thing. But, you know, there was Emery, you know, on the side of freedom, really, standing alone against uh, one, business, two, labor, three, politicians, four, and the media, each of which was represented, right, in that debate. And Mark won. And uh, pretty much, you know, and he ultimately won for a single reason, because his was the only one attached to reality. It was sure obvious from listening to the debate, but it wasn't at the time. That's what's scary. A lot of people bought into the arguments that were being pressed against Mark, which is why listening to old debates has sometimes had a lot of value. And um, in any case, we can see... Well, glad you like the show in any case, Paul, considering yours and a few other responses I've seen so far. It also appears that uh, listeners don't mind listening to 24-year-old debates. <laughs> <laughs> no, because as you said before, Bob, history rhymes. And then, uh, you know, Paul, and this is where I have a little announcement to make before we go to the break, Paul wrote back saying that he does like the old debates, and he told me about all the left, right, and center tapes that he has, right? Mm-hmm. And immediately I got guilty because I've been promising to get those things on online for years now. So finally, folks, I did it. And believe it or not, if you're a fan of Jim Chapman and you miss those old debates between him and myself and London lawyer Jeff Schlemmer on the left, we just started posting them this week. And you can find a link to that page. It just says left, right, and center at the top of our homepage at justrightmedia.org. Right, Robert? That's right. And I think there's 20 episodes up there already, and you will be amazed at what some of those subjects were. It's as if uh, nothing has changed in, what, those are 15 years old now, give or take. And that that show, of course, was the predecessor to this show. Yep. That's so, why you, you call it Just Right. And that's Yeah, because when the, left and, or when the left and center abandoned me, there I was. I was just right. <laughs> Only one left. <laughs> So, uh, anyways, Paul writes back. He says, once we've digitized the whole set, he'll, says he'll finally be able to get rid of his cassette player. <laughs> That's the only reason he's got it. So, we've got more feedback coming back about last week's show coming up on the other side of this break, which was about 
the subject last week, that is, if you missed it, was all about uh, race-based policing up at uh, the Caledonia situation. We'll be back right after this. But I bring you greetings from my First Nation. I'm a proud member of the Saugeen First Nation in Southern Ontario. And it's nice to... Rich? And I see some youth here. I see some youth. And that's... Uh, I, I, love, uh, I, I love acknowledging the youth. Uh, you've got a wonderful journey ahead of you. I remember uh, when I was a youth, had some magical experiences. 1965, I was abducted by aliens. <laughs> Pretty scary stuff. Abducted by... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Abducted. I'm sorry, I meant to say I was adopted by white people. <laughs> Which is pretty... Pretty much like an alien abduction when you think about it. Because <laughs> they snuck onto the reserve, they took me away. I had to learn a whole new language, a whole new culture, a whole new way to do my income tax return. Really freaked me out. Love show business, it's very exciting. You get to tour all across Canada. You get to see some exotic places, meet some wonderful people, and I just love that. I just love that. But you know what? When I go to a town, I go to a new city, and they, they see me, they oh, you're an Aboriginal uh, comedian. Well, welcome to town. You know, and I'm like, well, you know, uh, traditionally, in our culture, we don't have stand-up comics. We have storytellers. They said, oh, okay, Mr. Aboriginal storyteller, uh, tell us where you've been and where you're going. And those are just the police. Then I get to the show. <laughs> I'm a little bit older now, so I'm starting to, uh, you know, uh, maybe think about another, something to do, another challenge in my life, and uh, I've, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, but I'd like to become Canada's very first Aboriginal Prime Minister. What do you think about that, huh? <laughs> Vote for me! Free Slurpees for everybody! Come on, let's go! Can you imagine if I ran for Prime Minister and actually won? All the weird telephone calls I get the very first day in office. Hi there, Prime Minister Big Bear speaking. How you doing? Huh? What? Thousands of buffalo charging up the Trans-Canada Highway? Cool. Yeah, I know. I put them there. No, don't shoot them. They were here first. Read a book or something. We would never... Hi there, Prime Minister Big Bear speaking. Hmm? Oh, Jean Chrétien! You enjoying your retirement? Huh? You don't like it on the reserve. to stay there. <laughs> Any advice for you? Yeah, don't drink the water. Bye-bye now. Interesting humor, given that just in this past week alone, there's two major full-page articles in the London Free Press, basically, on these very themes and that very subject. Don't know how many of you were tuned in last week, but if you missed last week's show, you missed a biggie we had on three guests, uh, Andrew Lawton, Kristen Kay, Mary Lou Ambrosio, and two more voices by pre-recorded, which was Gary McHale and Mark Vandermas, all basically giving various testimonies on what has been happening to them personally with regards to race-based policing at Caledonia, which is one of our local messy spots <laughs> in terms of a dispute between us, us, us being our government and the natives. Here's some of the feedback we received on the show um, from Amanda via Facebook. Uh, she says, it's interesting, it's refreshing to have another perspective other than just the one. I wasn't too sure at first by the one. Did she mean just because she'd heard from Gary McHale before or did she mean the OPP side? I, I took it to voice. mean the, um, the OPP yeah, side. Yeah, okay, that's what I assumed Or the first mainstream too. media side. Because there are many more, <laughs> there are many more voices coming out mm -hmm. now, at least on that front. From Bill in London on Facebook, a complete and utter disgrace, he writes, is being perpetuated in Caledonia, Ontario. Postmodern, politically correct, so-called thinking has a pro provincial government actually refusing to uphold the rule of law and standing back while anarchy reigns in the area. And uh, Richard in London via Facebook writes that the ancestors of First Nations had no grasp of nation, only of tribally defended shifting patches of land with no private property. 
Their willingness to murder tribal members and horribly torture other tribes is unbelievable. Despite extensive documentation, all this has been whitewashed by the politically correct anti-Western thinking of leftist academia. Their cultural impact is such that both the natives and the Muslims are now able to fill the void of anarchy it has allowed. And if you wonder why he's making that reference, it's because we know that both groups are involved at Caledonia. Yes. Organized anarchists, organized Muslim groups, organized native groups from outside our own country. And, uh, of course, he says, you know, basically what a mess this is. And, of course, Paul again from Sweden writes, he said, uh, what an amazing episode today, both in terms of how interesting the show itself was and in my shock as to what is going on in Caledonia and how long it has been going on. I am no less disgusted, but unfortunately not surprised by the unspeakably horrid behavior of the OP, OPP and what happened to poor Kristen. I do have a question for both of you, and this is where he asks an interesting question that we might deal with on a future show, right, Robert? He says, um, he says, given the apparent lack of will on the, of the government to uphold any semblance of a civil society, and given that the government derives its mandate to use force from the very people they're supposed to protect, are the people in Caledonia still under the obligation to observe the government's monopoly on the retaliatory use of force? If the people indeed did organize an armed force to engage the Indians and the police as well, would such a break between the people and apparatus of state constitute a state of civil war? Interesting question. I found it fascinating, and you and I discussed it at length over the phone. Yes. Yeah, sometimes falling down on but, different sides of it. And, uh, well, I could see a, f- a few different angles on it, and I think that will be the subject on a broader theme, perhaps on a later show. But I was looking at these articles in the, in the free press, and I don't know if you saw the one on, uh, by Jane Sims on June 11th, Monday, this past Monday. This had to be done, it says, talking about the special courts that are being set up for natives. And they currently exist in Toronto, in London, and in Sarnia. Those are the three areas in Ontario where they list, where, where they exist. And they're being, uh, here's what I just, the highlights of this article I've got. It says, uh, they're, they're talking about one fellow who was from the reserves and was, you know, uh, basically caught and before the courts. And uh, he was before Ontario Court Justice McGrath. The fellow's name is Jesse French. And apparently in any regular criminal court, he would have been looking at jail time. But his tragic background and native heritage and entitle him to into consideration under the so-called Gladue principles articulated by the Supreme Court of Canada. And it notes that Aboriginals make up 3% of Canada's population, but 20% of its jails and prisons, which probably accounts for a lot of that humor we hear from, from the Aboriginal comics, always talking about, you know, getting a ride in a police car, getting taken somewhere by the police. Um, and they think that this is a chance to reach out to Aboriginal youths and break the cycle of crime. Incarceration doesn't really fix the problem. In general, we feel it makes someone become a better criminal, he said. Now, you know what? I might agree with that statement in isolation. I don't think incarceration is the best thing for everything either. But I don't know if I like this idea of treating different groups because of their ancestry. And that's literally what it says in the law. They have to be treated because of their ancestry. Which means I get the idea that even if they weren't on the reservations, if they were living among the rest of society, as most Aboriginals do, that they would still get this consideration. It's not only do we have race-based policing, now it seems that we have race-based justice. Well, that's where it's not the police. I don't even see the police as being a fault. It all comes down to the politics, and that's that's where it starts. And, you know, this um, pre-sentence reports, glad do reports, focus on the systematic First Nation problems. And I read the laundry list, as they call it, of sadness. Includes alcohol and drug abuse, sexual abuse, dysfunctional families, parenting and abandonment issue, suicide and depression, isolation, poverty, urbanization and colonization, intergenerational trauma, etc., etc. Now, this sounds like you could say this about anybody in any ghetto or in any public housing group. Yes, why do you have to be Aboriginal? Why, why do you have to be Aboriginal? And uh, get special treatment. And it does say a specialized, what is a glad due court? It's a specialized court for Native offenders in which judges are duty-bound to consider a person's Aboriginal background. This is almost like saying we now have a, a basis for implementing Sharia. If you're going to be treating one group with their own special laws, own special justice... What's to stop um, the Islamists from coming and saying that, well, okay, now we have to have Sharia? And all of you it got it, it for the Aboriginals? You know, what really bugs me the most is all of this is just dealing with the symptoms caused by the same people making those stupid laws. 
and that's the whole welfare state system, which I think is what you're going to be getting into next, aren't you, Robert? Yes, as a matter of fact, um, anybody who's been reading the news lately, especially here in Ontario and Canada, the Eaton's murders in Toronto, where a man from Regent Park Social Housing Project gunned down two other members from the same project and from the same gang with several bystanders injured. Let's focus people's attention on the state of so-called disadvantaged youth. And for a partial explanation of what might be causes for youth from poor neighborhoods to become uh, violent, turn to crime and gangs, and even commit brazen acts of murder, we have to look at the history of the war on poverty. Now, in 1985, economist Walter Williams from the United States hosted a PBS documentary called Good Intentions, where he looked at the U.S. government's war on poverty and compared it to his own upbringing in a broken home in Philadelphia. Now, let's hear a clip from that documentary, and we'll discuss it when we come back from the break. If you take a close look at the poverty figures, the most ironic and, I think, tragic conclusion that you reach is that we were winning the war on poverty in this country until shortly after Lyndon Johnson declared war on it. 1963, a time of incredible optimism for black people. The civil rights movement was about to achieve its greatest triumphs. A great war on poverty had been declared. But something went wrong. They say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. This might be that road. It's covered thick with good intentions. In the mid-1960s and throughout the 70s and early 80s, federal and state governments poured immense energy and well over a trillion dollars into the task of relieving poverty and promoting equality. The result, a complete failure. For many blacks at the lower end of the economic spectrum, the future looks more hopeless today than it did 20 years ago. More black teenagers and young adults are unemployed. More black families depend on welfare. Fewer black children are getting a decent education. In some inner cities, more than 70% of black babies are born out of wedlock. More black youngsters commit crimes. More black people are victims of crimes. Believe it or not, to a considerable extent, the government is the culprit. It is the government with its hundreds of billions of dollars. It is the government with its thousands of programs. It is the government with its endless good intentions. So what happens to kids who leave third-rate public schools for the job market? They run into yet another government-imposed roadblock, the minimum wage. I used to work in a store like this. I didn't eat a lot of back then either. I was 15 at the time, but I've been working since I was 10. As a shoeshine boy, dishwasher, fruit picker, and other odd jobs. But I wasn't the exception. My whole crowd worked. Back in those days, just about any kid who looked for a job could find one. Today, in ghettos like I grew up in, 70% of black children who look for jobs cannot find them. That's a shame, because a first job means much more than pocket change. It's a chance for a start, maybe in a store like this. Most of the kids that you give jobs to, uh, they, they hold them for a long period of time here, you know, and and... I wish I could give more kids jobs because I have kids constantly coming up to me asking me for jobs, you know, and I can't give them the jobs that I, w that I wish I could give. For a small employer to hire a young, inexperienced worker is a risk. The grocer who hired me could afford that risk. I only earn a dollar an hour, but that's all I was worth. I didn't have any experience or skills. Today, with an effective minimum wage of nearly $4 an hour, the risk of hiring a young, inexperienced worker may be too expensive to take. If there were a uh, lower minimum wage, I could hire maybe two or three more. The minimum wage law is a perfect example of the pattern afflicting poor black people today. The government, in an attempt to protect poor people, often creates new obstacles for them. In the 1950s, the minimum wage was only a dollar an hour. Given the price level at that time, that meant there was virtually no minimum. Starting in 1961, 
Congress began to push the minimum wage higher. In effect, the law forced teenagers to ask for more than they were worth. As it became more expensive to hire young workers, black teenage unemployment soared. By 1982, the effective minimum wage, including Social Security and other payroll taxes, was almost $4 an hour. And black teenage unemployment stood at nearly 50%. Other factors contributed, but the minimum wage did a lot of the damage. The minimum wage may seem like a small thing. But if government had prevented me from working as a teenager, as it prevents so many kids today, it might have altered the entire course of my life. If at that crucial time, I had gotten into the habits of the street, rather than the habits of working, I hate to think where I might be today. I think he'd be dead. Welcome back. <laughs> You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Um, if you wish to get hold of us, you can give us a call at 519-661-3600 or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that minimum wage laws are the single worst cause of youth unemployment. Not only applying to the United States back in 1985 when we heard Walter Williams talk about it, but also in Canada and today, especially since the rates continue to, to go up. And you know the proof is so self-evident too, Robert. That's when, my when, point. When yeah. McGinty raised no, but they know about it in advance. When McGinty raised a minimum wage in Ontario the last time, they predicted a loss of between twenty and thirty thousand jobs, and they got them. Yep. And they cared not one iota. They're a, they're a deliberate attempt to keep the youth out of the job market. Job Absolutely. Market. So as to protect the adults currently employed. Right. It's all union thinking. Other government programs deliberately designed to restrict the job market to those already employed are licensing of business, welfare, regulations on businesses, and pro-union closed shop attitudes, the kind which led to the closing of Electromotive Diesel in London and the closure of other plants throughout the province recently. Now, the first part of Walter Williams' documentary, which, by the way, you can find on YouTube, it's simply called um, Good Intentions, and you can just YouTube Walter Williams' Good Intentions. You'll be able to see it there. Um, the first part of it dealt with the education system, and no matter how much money they had pumped into it, of course, it always failed the students. Now, I don't want to cover in detail the education argument, but suffice it to say that, in my opinion, whoever can afford it should immediately remove their children from the public education system, including the Catholic one, and either send them to a private school, homeschool them, or just keep them at home. Because um, what public education system is doing to our children today, it's absolutely destroying their minds. Problem Every is, child has expressed... The problem is I'm hearing plans that they're going after the people in their homes, too, who have already started doing it. Yeah. These are upcoming I, I'm plans. Not surprised. I'm yeah. not surprised, but I'm saying, you know, get them out of there because um, they're destroying their minds. This week alone, we've got two examples, just two, this week, of gross intellectual negligence. One high school teacher in Quebec showed the Luca, uh, Luca Magnata snuff video the murder of Jun Lin to his class of 16 and 17 year olds. Now mind you the kids asked for it, except for a few of them, which is another story why mm -hmm. children would want to see something like that and the Toronto District School Board if you go to Blazing Cat Fur it's a blog mm -hmm. um, Blazing Cat Fur has broken a story about the Toronto District School Board on its website showing a glowering report of how the great revolutionary Che Guevara brought literacy to Cuba. <laughs> Without mentioning, of course, his heinous, cold-blooded murders, racism, and homophobia. Unbelievable. So that's your education system. It's my... I think it's the intent of the unions, politicians, social engineers to keep young adults and teens off the streets and out of the job market for decades shielding them from reality. Just think of the length of schooling compared to the length of schooling, say, in the 40s, 50s. Before, grade 8 was enough to get you any job, basically. In Europe, it was six years, according yeah. to my father. And what they took in six years was, was the things he saw me doing in grade 13. Exactly. Now yeah. you had, When I graduated, it was from grade 11 in Newfoundland. We mm -hmm. didn't have grade 12. We had a grade 11. And the only thing I had to do was take an extra course in mathematics to get into university in Ontario. That one little course in pre-calculus. So, you can teach basic reading and writing in, in the oh. longest it should take is six weeks. Oh, yeah. Right? Well. For most people. Yeah. Yeah, but the mathematics and things like that and history, uh, you don't need any more than eight years of education. Now you've got grade 12 in Newfoundland. Then it went to grade 13 or OACs in Ontario, the so-called victory lap, which they're getting rid of now, which is good. 
And then there's the encouragement by way of loans, grants and expectations to attend university for another three to eight years. But when everyone has a degree, the competition for certain jobs is so fierce they'll be highly credentialed garbage collectors. And that's why they're marching in the streets. Really, I mean, they don't say that. I mean, they want their free education. They want to stay in education. They want to not face reality, not face the workforce. They want this free ride. A lot of them do. And so what happens to these the, the minds of these children when normally uh, in our grandfather's age, our father's age, um, they would be out working as young teenagers, developing skills, networking with employers. You know, you know my father... And now they, they, they're <clears throat> out until they're 25, 30 years old. And all of a sudden they're thrown into the job market and they have no skills. They may have a highly credentialed education at a university, but they don't know how to plug A into B. You know, my father worked in the construction industry when he was alive. Had a couple of big construction companies, uh, mostly in plumbing and heating. And uh, when I was a kid, he would drag me to work with him, which would be totally illegal today. You can't take a kid onto a job site, right? I'd, he'd put a helmet on me and all that stuff. But I was, I was there working right along with the adults. I was basically, you know, slave labor, like the Free Press wrote here mm-hmm. on the weekend. Children who are working, and these are kids in poverty countries where if they don't work, they die. And yet we're com- complaining that they work, right? Nobody's here talking about how we should put a kid in front of a sewing machine and stand no. over them with a cane. But they, that's, that's but they should be allowed about. to work from as soon as they start asking for jobs. There shouldn't be a government there telling them they can't make $1 or $2 an hour. $10.25, I think, is the minimum wage in Ontario. Can you imagine a kid, say, 12, 13 years old, being able to go out to, um, say, a shopper's drug mart and ask to sweep the floors? You know, well, okay, I'll sweep the floors. I'll pick up the garbage around the building. Just pay me 3 bucks an hour. Right. Do that for 6 hours a day. That's 18 bucks a day. You know how much is that that in a week? But that, that was you, know, you got a hundred bucks in a week in his pocket is, for a twelve-year-old. That's that's a fortune. That's not even the issue. The issue is once that person, that child, gets in there and makes his first eighteen dollars a few times, and the employer goes, "Wow, he shows up every week. Hey, I got a job for you." That's right. That's how it works it's every networking. single time, and and proving that you you show up. You know. Showing up is nine tenths of winning any game. But what know. do we say to our kids? Oh, go out there and get as much education as you can until you're 25, 30 years old. Go out there and get your bachelor's, get your master's, get your PhD. Yeah, and then what do you do? you got a tin cup at the end where you can go out and beg. That's what you we know used to why? call it, you know a tin why? cup. Because they devalued knowledge in the process by giving it away to everybody. You know, knowledge is extraordinarily valuable, and people used to be willing to pay for it. Now we give it away. Give it away. And, and when you do that... You destroy its value in so many ways, it's hard to explain. In my opinion, and I've been to university and I have a degree, university is for a privileged few. Not necessarily uh, financially privileged, but there's only or, a certain or segment. Or royalty privileged. No or royalty. By blood no, or there's anything a certain like segment of society that university is made for, who are the intelligent among us, the, the extremely intelligent. You know, if you, if you can afford it, that's fine too. But... We don't need every single kid going to university, keeping keeping them out of the workforce. A lot of changes have to be made here. Now, the remainder of William's documentary illustrates quite clearly that government is the prime suspect in the growth of poverty, illegitimate children, unemployment, and crime. Let's hear some more from the documentary. Of course, many black people have made it in recent years, especially those who have finished college and entered their professions. But many others, on the lower end of the scale trying to get solid blue-collar careers have run into government roadblocks that work just like the minimum wage law. I drove a cab back in 1957 for a while. I made about $125 a week. Drivers in Philly now tell me they make about $250 a week. If they own their own cabs, they can make almost twice as much and be in business for themselves. But what stops them? It's the thousands of federal and state regulations that are imposed on the U.S. economy. In Philly, the number of cab licenses is restricted by law. That makes them scarce and expensive, almost $20,000 a piece at last count. If you can't come up with 20 grand, forget about driving for yourself. In Washington, D.C., you can get a cab license for less than $50. As a result, 90% of the D.C. cabbies own their own cabs compared to less than 50% in Philly. Fares are lower, the drivers keep more, and of course, more people can get work as drivers. Nearly a thousand occupations in the United States exclude people who do not have licenses. Sometimes the licenses cost money. 
Sometimes they require the applicant to pass complicated tests that have little to do with the job. Sometimes getting a license requires a friend in the business. All those licensing laws do just one thing, keep outsiders out. And where do people end up after the government denies them chances for a decent education or a decent job? In the clutches of the worst government roadblock of them all, the dependency of the welfare system. Richard Allen Project of North Philadelphia. My father deserted us when I was three, so occasionally my mother had to take welfare. But she didn't like it, so she took work as a domestic servant whenever she could. Back then, welfare wasn't a way of life. My mother only received $25 a week. Almost any job paid more than that. So even if she wanted to stay on welfare, she had very little incentive to do so. I came from a broken home, but in my day that was unusual. Black families were almost as stable as white families. The black family did not start falling apart until the 1960s, as more blacks were lured into the welfare culture. And this came in two ways. One way was that prevented the formation of families, that is, fostered illegitimacy. And it's easy to understand how this happened. Just imagine that you're a 16-year-old girl in some ghetto apartment. Uh, you scarcely know your father. He occasionally visits. Perhaps he's drunk a lot of the time. He doesn't have a job. Your mother is under terrible stress trying to discipline her boys. We're often out, this, out in the streets in gangs. The neighborhood is rife with crime. Within the household itself, there are serious tensions between you and your mother. It's just a very difficult way of life. And the government, however, offers a deal to this 16-year-old girl. It says you can leave all this. You can have liberation in an apartment of your own. You can have access to some 17 different social programs. You can have free medical care, free legal assistance if you need it. You can have several hundred dollars a, a month free, all on one condition. And that one condition is that you have an illegitimate child. And that, of course, is from the documentary Good Intentions by Walter Williams, which you can find on YouTube. And thank you, Mary Lou Ambrosio, for pointing me into that um, documentary. I had not uh, seen it before. And what I'd like to take away from it is the fact that it is misnamed Good Intentions. When the war on poverty first began after the Second World War, the intentions of those involved may have been good, but since all the data collected since then has quite clearly demonstrated that every single intervention by government to combat poverty has created more poor, more illegitimate children, more ghettos, more unemployment, and more crime, one can only conclude that the efforts of today's politicians to combat poverty are not based on good intentions. Their welfare schemes and wealth redistribution efforts can only be described as willful, deliberate, methodical, cold-hearted, and immoral. In the face of overwhelming evidence that social welfare programs, minimum wage laws, regulations, licenses, biases in favor of closed union shops, and social housing ghettos have had the exact opposite consequences than those they have purported, it is abundantly clear that the politicians have ulterior motives here. Take Regent Park in Toronto, the home of the gang members involved in the Eaton Centre murders. This project was built in the 1940s as a government social housing experiment, and at 69 acres, it is the largest of the kind in the country. It involves the demolition. It involved the demo, demolishing of the centre of the neighbourhood called Cabbage Town, and the erecting of cookie cutter apartment complexes where the poor could pay whatever they were able to to be there. It is currently run by the Toronto Community Housing and it has become an enclave of economic refugees who are corralled together in high density in what has become a ghetto of crime and poverty where the residents have very little hope of ever getting out. London has its own 
little ghettos like this, all set up supposedly with the good intentions of local politicians. But, of course, the effect is what you have are ghettos. One of the most inherent problems of concentrating the poor together is that when everyone you know is poor, your friends, classmates, neighbors, friends of friends, there are no role models to emulate to get out of poverty. There's no one to teach them the personal habits necessary to prosper, to network, to get into business. If all you know is poverty, then that is all you can come to expect. The result is despair, particularly for the youth. This government-created problem can be solved by allowing the tenants of these apartments to buy their unions, units outright, much like when Margaret Thatcher did the same thing. In if I Britain. may quickly interject, this mm-hmm. can also be done to all of our native reserves. Thank you very Agreed, much. Agreed, totally. Home ownership leads to pride of ownership. It allows them to have equality, or, sorry, equity and capital, which can then be leveraged to their economic advantage. It should not go unnoticed that the representative politicians for Regent Park are from the extreme left of the political spectrum. Locally in Toronto, there's Pam McConnell of the NDP, responsible for Regent Park. Provincially, Glenn Murray of the McGuinty Liberals. And federally, guess who is responsible for Regent Park in Toronto Centre? That's right, Bob Ray, one-time NDP Premier of the province and now the interim leader of the federal Liberals. He's the MP for the area. It should be obvious that they have no intention in doing anything to correct the problem at Regent Park. It can also easily be surmised that these politicians need this society of victims to hold up as motive for their wealth redistribution schemes. So they create a problem for their own agendas. It's the same, same motive and the same tactic exactly that communists have used since that word was meant yeah. or ever invented, you know. Okay, let's leave Regent Park and look at the broader picture of growing up in today's world where many of the adults in positions of responsibility over children have either immoral or amoral ideas about how one should live their lives. This week, we saw the speech of David McCullough Jr. at the commencement ceremonies of Wellesley High School in Massachusetts go viral and hit the media talk shows. Did you hear it, Bob? I haven't heard it yet, but I sure heard about it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, most people have. Um, You find it easily on YouTube. It's all over the place. The speech admonished the graduates for being coddled by their parents and too self-centered. And by the way, there was a lot about it I really liked. And yet, this is what I took away from that speech. Not one pundit had anything bad to say about the speech. Even though, to me, the speech is a prime example of what not to say to any child. Here's Mr. McConnell's closing remarks. Quote, Exercise free will and creative independent thought not for the satisfaction they will bring you, but for the good they will do others, the rest of the 6.8 billion, and those who will follow them. And then you too will discover the great and curious truth of the human experience, is that selflessness is the best thing you can do for yourself. Unquote. Not one radio pundit could correctly identify that it is this instruction to sacrifice yourself to the service of others, which is at the root cause of all of our problems, all of them. Altruism is the belief that your life is not your own and then that you should devote it to the service of others. This goes against the very nature of an individual human being who knows with every fiber of his being that his life is his own, and that nobody has a claim to it. But the philosophy of altruism is drilled into children today from their parents, teachers, politicians, and from the pulpit. With such positively revolting guidance, it's no wonder that the youth of the day day despair, turn to crime and gangs, turn to violence, or feel absolutely hopeless and helpless, and don't get into the job market. It's it's even worse than that. If you, if you look at the just the stupid theory of altruism, giving to others, you know, not don't don't do it for yourself, but do it for others. That's so stupid on its face. I I, I have a hard time containing myself. If I'm sacrificing for somebody else, who do I get my benefits from? Who's sacrificing for me? And what about all those others? Aren't they supposed to be sacrificing too? Why should I be doing anything for them? 
They should be doing it for me. <laughs> That's like, like where's yes. where's the logic in that? That's it's, the other part of the equation, so isn't it? Bloody stupid! I, 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 it's it, it, it's beyond animals. Don't think that bad. Now if the I, reason, whenever I run into things that are so unbelievably stupid, you know what it always is. Why? You know what the why is? Because hmm. it's evil. Yes. Because someone's doing something, and why do they want the poor? They want the poor to justify power and spending for things they want. No, I, haven't, I have yet to meet a person who really wants socialized medicine to help the poor. They want it for themselves. And they justify it by saying, oh, we're going to help the poor and make sure the other guy gets his money. It's the biggest con game. And it's the first con game you should learn when you're five years old, not, not implementing your government for the rest of your... The thing is oh. that they loot it. Children do learn it when they're five years old. Yeah, I know. And then they have to spend 20 years under the tutelage of adults like this person, you, 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 telling you, them, no, no, that's not it. That's a def- a def- I'm going to tell you something to defy your human nature that you have to sacrifice your life for others. Everybody yeah. knows that's wrong. It's, it's un- unreal. And, and, you know, in Sarnia, they were just talking about recently they have a, a spate of nine young kids who have just committed suicide yes. just in the last couple of months. And there's close to 50 of them on suicide watch in the city of Sarnia. Yep. And meanwhile, here come up all the school board people saying, oh, we can't understand the reasons. I mean, we're just teaching them that they don't have a future, that they have to go green, and anything they do to earn their living is destroying the planet and destroying their friends. And uh, They're instilled with it, guilt from day oh. one, from original sin, if they're in the, in the Christian, Christian religion. To, well, oh, it goes on and on. If I was giving a commencement speech, contrary to Mr. McConnell's talk here, what I would say to the students is this. Congratulations on achieving your efforts. So first of all, getting out of public education. Now you're free to go out there and work for your own life. Nobody owes you a living, and you should ask nothing from anybody else. Work for your own uh, results, and then you'll enjoy them. But the idea that you have to sacrifice your your life for somebody else's is absolutely revolting, and that is the ultimate philosophy behind every problem that we have politically today. I agree. Just make, got to make the people aware of it. I guess that's it for this week, and we want to thank Zach for sitting in for Ed this week. Take us away, and we'll be back next week. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, think right. Be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be Basically, all you have to do is be able to solve the problem. All you have to do as a police officer is be able to solve problems. All your peers want you to do, all your superiors want you to do, all anybody wants you to do as a cop is solve the problem. Problem solved is what we'd say. Some years ago, I made a domestic violence call. I go inside, and this guy is beating this lady up. So I go in, and I start beating him up. And then the lady starts beating me up. Then I start beating her up. Then me and the guy had a beer, and I I left. (laughs) Problem solved. Some guys think it's okay for you to hit your lady if she hits you first. I don't think so. I think, guys, if your lady hits you, you should do the mature thing. You should tell your mother. Because you know your mother hadn't spanked anybody in 15 years, but she would come out of retirement to beat your woman up, wouldn't she? (laughs) 